510. Warning. Access restricted. Please submit to DNA. Verification. Processing. Verification complete. Access granted. Welcome. Hello and welcome to the Monitor Room at the Christian Geek Central Podcast, a biblical examination and celebration of geekery and geek entertainment. As well as the official podcast of ChristianGeekCentral.com, I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions, producing entertainment and resources to hopefully equip, encourage, and inspire Christian geeks like you and me to live increasingly for Christ, experiencing the life-giving freedom and purpose He has made us for. For more information about Spirit Blade Productions, you can check out SpiritBlade.com. Haven't quite... uh woken up yet uh it's it's uh earlier er, early in the morning it's about 555 right now and during during the summer months i would normally be getting up uh well i mean my alarm is not set to go off until when is it well during the school year 630 now i'm just babbling now i'm just babbling point is i i couldn't i couldn't sleep and so i just had to get up and get going so I thought oh, I can knock out the recording of this and get some editing. It's a it's a packed day for me today. This is uh, as I record this. This is Friday, June twenty second, uh, and I've got a live stream that uh, you. By the time you hear this, will probably be over. Um, that, but that's starting at four p.m. And so I, I have a bunch of stuff that I have to pack in, including review and editing the podcast and other you know normal daily duties and things. Oh my gosh. So, uh, I thought, well, if I'm awake, I am going to be productive so that later on when I can sleep and my body wants me to sleep, I can hopefully get in a quick power nap. Anyway, let's get on with things. On the show today, uh, my reviews of Incredible. I almost said The Incredibles. Incredibles 2 and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, plus a review of the lit RPG audiobook The Land Founding. All right, here we go. My father once told me that I could use my powers to make a difference. He told me I had a responsibility to help others. He told me I could save this world. Save everyone. Then he told me, walk the gerbil, walk the gerbil. Frickin' weirdo. Incredibles 2. I think they removed the the. Wasn't the first one called The Incredibles? And they just ditched the the, added the two. Here we go. The synopsis on IMDb, very short, reads, Bob Parr, Mr. Incredible, is left to take care for the kids, I think they mean of the kids, while Helen, Elastigirl, is out saving the world. Um, So I'll try to elaborate just a little bit on that. Uh, It takes place right on the heels of the first Incredibles movie, even though it's been like 14 years since that movie came out. There's even kind of an apology from the voice cast at the beginning, like, we know it's been a long time, sorry, thanks for your patience, we hope you enjoy, and then they show the movie, you know. Um... But anyway, it's uh, right on the heels of that, and supers are still illegal, but there's like this big corporation that, uh, it's, a, it's a sibling, it's a, it's a man and a woman, grown, you know, adults, who their, their parents died as a result of superheroes being outlawed, and so they want to help um, 
change the PR for the better for supers. And they think that Elastigirl is the best uh, way to do that. So they're basically funding her, providing income for the uh, the Parr family, while Elastigirl, at least to start, goes out there and starts you know being publicized and uh, puts a good face on supers. And then, provided that's successful, they'll bring Mr. Incredible back and all these other superheroes. And you know, and then uh, you know this PR campaign will be a success, and they will change the law so that supers can be legal again. So that's kind of like the basic premise of it. Um, while she's out fighting crime and this new menace that has showed up. Uh, Bob Parr, Mr. Incredible, has to stay home because he's kind of a PR nightmare. <laughs> so he's going to stay home instead and take care of uh, of the kids, you know. Uh, as far as the, the story, the script, the pacing, and just the general tone, this is very similar to the, the first movie and to many Pixar movies. It's a light comedy adventure with layers of humor built in, both for the child audience and for the adults that will be accompanying them or going out and seeing the movie by themselves. The, the first movie I watched... Before, let's see, this would have been 14 years ago. So yeah, my oldest is like only 10. So I saw it well before I had kids and I, you know, really enjoyed it. Um, and this time I saw it with two boys in tow, a 10-year-old and, uh, and a 7-year-old. Um, so it was a, a bit of a different experience. But even rewatching the first one over the years has been a different experience, you know, being uh, as, as I became a dad myself. Uh, but anyway, there's plenty of action. Uh, plenty of visual gags that result from creative use of powers that just come in fast succession compared to many live-action superhero movies. I'll comment on that again in a little bit. It also has heart and uses these over-the-top superhero situations to parallel very common issues related to being part of a young family. And the first movie did that as well. So if you really appreciated that about how the script was written and the themes in the first one, you're going to get that same kind of treatment in the script for this one. The story, though, was a little disappointing to me as it didn't continue to kind of poke fun of superhero tropes to the degree that the first movie did. We've had so many superhero movies since that first Incredibles movie came out. There are lots of tropes that they could have, you know, new things that they could have kind of poked fun at in the same way that they poked fun at tropes of the superhero genre with the first movie. Uh, and then they also leaned heavily again on the backdrop of supers being illegal. I would be interested in seeing them ha have some other kind of like... Some have a status quo change, you know, and uh, that, uh, uh, that that would have them dealing with something different than the usual kind of PR stuff that they were, I think, kind of dealing with in the first movie. And they even copied and pasted what, what I would say is a major structural element, I don't want to be more specific, from the plot of the first movie. And I'm not going to say any more because I don't want to spoil anything. But it was just odd, you know. In this way, the script to me felt like the kind of sequel that would be quickly generated to just get another movie in the franchise out the door on the heels of the first one's success. But it's been well over a decade since the last movie, and so it was strange to see this type of script be the result of, of that uh, that time, uh, that, that kind of delay. My personal preference would have been a movie that makes good on the tease at the end of the first Incredibles movie, where you see the whole family posed together, ready to do, you know, superhero do-goodery, all fighting crime together. Uh, and instead, this story largely puts mom and dad in different locations for most of the movie and also segments the kids uh, spatially from both parents a lot as well. So uh, that was a little bit disappointing to me. But the movie still had me loving these well-developed characters for all their unique uh, personalities and quirks. It was great to see them again and just kind of watch their lives continue. Um, talking briefly about the cast, the returning core cast are all the same except for the new child actor that's voicing Dash, which I thought was like 
like a really shockingly good sound-alike to the original actor who would be much too old now to uh, voice the same part again. They even seem to have used alternate takes or cutting room floor material from the original baby who voiced Jack-Jack in the first movie because the same actor is credited, but when you go to his IMDb page, he looks like he's, you know, about 14 or 15 years old. Craig T. Nelson who plays Mr. Incredible, and Holly Hunter, who does the voice of uh, Elastigirl, both sounded uh, just a tad older on a few lines, but not so much that it took away from their great performances once again in this movie. And Samuel L. Jackson is Samuel L. Jackson. He does a great job with that. Uh, The rest of the cast is, you know, as solid as I would expect for a a Pixar movie. Just commenting briefly again on the stunts and visuals, uh, there's such fun and creative use of powers in this movie. Unlike many live-action movies that sometimes even seem kind of overly proud of their effects and want you to have plenty of time to kind of soak them in. This movie sometimes seemed to like dare me to keep up with the fast and furious onslaught of sight gags and super-powered fight choreography. I mean, it was a visual treat that I I think I'll be sure to be able to appreciate through multiple viewings. I'll probably just catch a little bit more every time, you know, even when the story, you know, fails to surprise or or pull me in on on, uh, repeat viewings. Uh, As far as, you know, relevance, is there anything of moral, philosophical, or spiritual significance going on in the theming of this story that would maybe stimulate worthwhile thought or conversation? Well, two moments stand out to me. The first one is there's a scene in which I'll be vague. Uh, A villain tells a hero, if it weren't for your core values, we might have been friends. To which the hero replies, at least I have core values. And I think this is an example of a writer wanting to affirm objective moral values. He he wants weight to that idea of core values. But... Um, but I suspect the writer, you know, maybe realized, uh, you know, consciously or not, that they can't uh, go any further than that without identifying a, a basis for them. So in trying to say something, but unable to commit to saying more than core values, uh, they end up saying almost nothing. Because, of course, the villain also has some core values that they hold to. You know, it's not very heroic for a hero to say, at least I have core values. Well, everybody has core values unless you are rolling the dice and just making decisions randomly. Um, What I think that the the writer's wanting to say is that the hero has has morally superior core values to the villain's inferior core values. But nobody wants to say that one person's values are superior or inferior to another. And so we get what is ultimately a substance exchange that's trying for substance, but unwilling ultimately to commit to saying something of substance. It reminds me of when people um, uphold the value of faith, having faith, uh, and uphold the value of being spiritual, but without specifying what one should have faith in, or in what way someone should be, quote-unquote, spiritual. Uh, A person can have faith in some very harmful ideas, as we frequently see in the news. Uh, Likewise, the the villain in this this story has some strong and self-serving core values. Uh, They were not acting at random, but were acting based on their strongly held core values and core beliefs. Um... Faith, belief, spirituality, and core values are not in themselves necessarily good. 
when we hear them being treated this way, I think that's an opportunity to gently ask a clarifying question or two so that uh, beliefs can actually be clearly put on the table and then possibly examined or talked about further. The second moment that stood out in this movie was, by contrast, affirming something I think is really good. When Mr. Incredible has to stay home and take care of the kids for an extended period, he ultimately becomes overwhelmed at that role. Uh, at first, he does a lot of kind of self-justifying in comedic ways, but in the end, he just has this moment, this valley of confession in brokenness that he has just made a mess of things. He wants to be a good dad. He says that, but he's blowing it or falling short in so many respects. And he acknowledges that too. And he's just at a loss. And it's in that moment of confession that, that, uh, uh, that the one he has wronged actually comes to have the most respect and affection for him. Um, this is a great model for all of us, whether we're parents or not. As much as we can stay in that mode of confession, it will ultimately be better for us and for those around us. Trying to convince ourselves and others that we're doing pretty well and mostly have it all together, it's just a lie or it's an ignorance of truth that comes from a lack of really looking closely at ourselves. And, and it just keeps us from growing and may even result in us self-destructing, ultimately. I had a moment similar to Mr. Incredible's moment a few years ago. My boys were younger and uh, much harder to, to care for. Uh, I needed to step up in ways that would hurt, that would be very taxing and trying for me. But I told myself... Um, for a while in order to avoid stepping up like that, that, you know, I was, I was doing better while I was doing better than so-and-so in my mind. I didn't say these things out loud. I just like, well, I'm doing better than so-and-so. Uh, and you know, what more should really my wife expect or wh whoever expect, you know, my, how much, how much more should my boys expect? They have it so much better than blah, 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 you know. But then I hit this breaking point when I saw how I was hurting my wife and I took a hard look at myself compared not just to like some other parent that I could conveniently cherry pick and favorably compare myself to, but, um, but I, I compared myself to the perfection of Jesus. And I chose to just face the reality of that comparison and trust God to catch me as he's promised to in those moments in like this net of his tireless forgiveness and mercy. It, it was like a dam broke. And I saw a whole lot of my own ugliness that I hadn't faced up to before. But hot on the heels of that was this huge burden that was lifted. Um, the, the perfect and righteous track record that God uh, demands of his children is impossible for us to achieve. But it's also been earned for us and applied to our account by Jesus. So more than anyone else, we as believers in Jesus should feel the freedom, the readiness to take a hard look uh, at our hearts and lives compared not to some convenient example we want to pick, but compared to the perfection of Jesus. And then seeing that, seeing our own ugliness, consider what next step God is calling us to while at the same time not being defeated by our brokenness and our failures and our selfishness, because that is, that is forgiven, that is paid for. And we have the promise that after this life, um, God is going to fix once and for all that brokenness in us. 
Um, so we, uh, I think a lot of people when, f- when faced with the idea of look, taking a hard look at themselves, they, they have to comfort themselves with, by lowering the bar somehow of, you know, and in- favorably comparing themselves to some lower standard than perfection. Um, and then they're going to find a point where they have no more reason to grow anywhere because they'll meet whatever standard they've decided they are going to hold themselves to and not need to go any further than that. Um, so they're going to stop growing. But we as believers in Jesus have this model of perfection that we can always be moving toward. And at the same time, that the fact that it's a perfect model doesn't have to be discouraging in this thing that, that beats us down because we have the safety net of the forgiveness, the grace, the tireless mercy of Jesus that uh, wipes clean our record and applies his righteousness in its place. Um, anyway, those are my thoughts for now. I, you know, I have no idea what your uh, preferences or <laughs> whatever tastes are in movies, but if I were a time traveler, I would probably go back in time and say, Peter, um, you know, if it was just you, you could just red box it sometime, but you got two boys and they're going to love this. So go see it with them and your wife. You're going to have fun with them. You're going to have like some knowing leg squeezes between you and your wife as you think about comparisons, you know, and you see yourselves in the movie and, uh, and you'll enjoy your boys enjoying this movie. And, uh, you know, while it's not going to do all the things you'd like it to, it's still going to be, be a movie you're, you're really going to enjoy watching with uh, your your wife and your two boys. Uh, It's rated PG for action sequences and some brief, mild language. I want to remind you guys to check out the other members of the Christian Geek Central Network, such as the Strangers and Aliens podcast, the Theology Gaming podcast, the Untold podcast, P-O-S-T-O-S, Helix Reviews, and the Retro Rewind podcast. For more information about the CGC Network, visit ChristianGeekCentral.com. Hi guys, this is Katja from the Netherlands, Comicate on the forums. Having wet my appetites with the Awaken Online series, which I reviewed on this podcast in episode 496, I recently tried the next title on my ever-growing lit RPG wishlist, The Land, colon, Founding. This is part one of the by now six-volumed Chaos Seeds series, written by Eleron Kong, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The 9 hours 49 minutes long story is narrated by Nick Podell, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The publisher's summary reads, Tricked into a world of banished gods, demons, goblins, sprites and magic, Richter must learn to meet the perils of the land and begin to forge his own kingdom. Actions have consequences across the land, with powerful creatures and factions now hell-bent on Richter's destruction. Can Richter forge allegiances to survive this harsh and unforgiving world, or will he fall to the dark denizens of this ancient and unforgiving realm? A tale to shake the land itself, measuring 10 out of 10 on the Richter scale, how will Richter's choices shape the future of the land and all who reside in it? Can he grow his power to meet the deadliest of beings of the land? When choices are often a shade of grey, how will Richter ensure he does not become what he seeks to destroy? P.S. Gnomes rule. My thoughts. This was my first audiobook narrated by Nick Podale, and I'm an immediate fan. 
This is truly awesome narration, with great voice acting for each character and many different voices to distinguish between them. His female voices are among the best, maybe the best, I've heard by a male narrator. So from now on, Podale may read anything and I'll listen to it. Which means I'm probably going to get this entire series. That being said, the first book of this many-volume series was okay. It was entertaining enough, and I'm even willing to try the second book in the series. However, I'm not sure when, since it won't be the highest on my wish list. The Land Founding only gets three stars for me, because I've read and listened to much better books. By which I mean better fleshed-out characters, more conflict or striving in the plot. Everything comes pretty easy to the main character. And a far more complex and thrilling storyline overall. I had difficulty caring for the main characters, they were so two-dimensional. The plot had a definite young adult feel, and I'm not even sure the author was aiming for that. I had another issue, which were the many game stats. They were too many too often. This is lit RPG, but, you know, it can be too much. Maybe it would have helped if they'd chosen a completely different narrator to be the game computer reading of the stats, like in Awaken Online. But still, I lost interest every time they were read. Another issue I had was the way the main character leveled up. It wasn't exciting at all. To me it seemed he gained level points for about anything he did, said or looked at, which took away any kind of thrill the listener may have felt. Again, Awaken Online does a much better job there. But, 1. Since this is only Volume 1, 2. Since the main premise is still interesting, certain in-game humans are permanently trapped in the game, 3. Since I was absolutely positively intrigued by the first couple of prologue pages, which I won't spoil, but which offer a kind of a behind-the-scenes viewpoint of some greater powers that be, I am probably going to continue with the next volume. Also, the already mentioned great narration is a not unimportant deciding factor there. The book is long enough to be worth the credit or the money, and I can appreciate it as a very light entertainment in between more heavy works of literature. This was only my second series in the lit RPG genre, but as it stands now, this is my top two. 1. Awaken Online series. 2. Chaos Seeds series. So to be continued, I guess. If you'd like more of my reviews, check out comicsandgadgets.wordpress.com. You can, of course, also find me on the Christian Geek Central forums, where I am Comicate. Thank you for listening, and tot de volgende keer! Data collection complete. Activating Usenet 1.0. This week at SpiritBlade.com, our summer sale is still running where you can get any or all parts of our SpiritBlade audio drama trilogy for 20% off. More details at SpiritBlade.com. At YouTube.com slash ChristianGeekCentral, you can get my video reviews of Incredibles 2 and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. And uh, while you're there, if you want to like, share, and subscribe, that would be a great way to help to grow our community. And if you like watching the videos, be sure to click that little notify bell. That way you won't uh, you won't risk missing a video when it goes up. What else here? Um, do, 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 do. Well, I guess all that remains is to remind you that if you want to help
help make sure Spirit Blade Productions can keep doing what we're doing or do more of it, both faster and better, you're invited to make a donation of any amount, anytime, or become a part of the Spirit Blade, become a part of the Spirit Blade Insider Program and get monthly exclusive goodies. And I do want to say a special thank you to all of my Spirit Blade Insiders for your really tangible support, guys, that make so much of my work possible. Um, for more information about becoming a Spirit Blade Insider, you can visit our About page at spiritblade.com. And while you're there, you're also invited to support us by purchasing a download of one of our original sci-fi fantasy audio dramas for a friend or family member with our available gift codes. Again, for information, visit spiritblade.com. Well, thank you all for joining me on this historic day. The serum I've created will give anyone who drinks it the power to objectively know the difference between something that is cool and something that is lame. The serum is available to anyone who provides a review for the Spirit Blade Underground podcast and is completely safe. Allow me to demonstrate. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. The IMDb synopsis reads, When the island's dormant volcano begins roaring to life, Owen, that's Chris Pratt, and Claire, that's Bryce Dallas Howard, is that her name, mount a campaign to rescue the remaining dinosaurs from this extinction-level event. All right, um... The tone, the script, let me talk about that briefly, is very similar to previous Jurassic Park films, especially to the, the last one, Jurassic World. I am not the audience for this movie. Um, I'm guessing the target audience, as I reflect on it right now, is maybe families with specifically pre-teen kids. Those that, those that are, you know, tweens, like between 10 and 12. Uh, maybe, you know, 13, 14, too. It's too scary, I think, for younger kids, but it's too, I think, nonsensical for many older fans of science fiction. Um, so it's either for that demographic or for people that are just, they don't, they're not, they don't need a, a story that's, you know, going to make, make sense and, like, logically kind of hold together. The premise is that the island is now volcanic, that all these movies have taken place on. So they need to rescue the dinosaurs so they don't go extinct. And I'm thinking, well, where to begin? I mean, first off, dinosaurs, like dinosaurs, went extinct millions of years ago. These are new animals, half-breed lab experiments. I mean, that's basic Jurassic Park 101. But suddenly they're calling them, I mean, they're treating them like dinosaurs, like they're the same thing, but there were even characters that pointed this out, I think, in the first Jurassic Park, that, you know, these really aren't actually dinosaurs. And so to say that dinosaurs, these dinosaurs will go extinct, they're, the dinosaurs are already extinct. These are lab experiments, they're half-breeds, they're genetic experiments. And number two, you don't need to get these animals off the island. Uh, you just need to take tissue samples so you can grow some more off the island and they were able to start getting those even before the title screen of this movie so why they had all these characters risking themselves to get on the island and get a certain number of these large animals bodily actually off of the island is kind of beyond me there's lots of needless death in this movie <laughs> Because of, you know, the, uh, when you think about the logic of it. But it's also selective, at least, you know, if you're good and funny 
in this world, then you get to live. The dinosaurs will always kind of trip or skitter around. They won't be successful in eating you. If you're bad and greedy, they will jump out of nowhere. They will be successful. They will be super skilled and you will die. So uh, don't be greedy, kids, is the message, maybe. Um, if you want the ranty version of my thoughts on this movie, you can check out my review of the original Jurassic World. The same problems I had with that one have basically carried over into this one, and I don't need to add stink to the internet repeating myself on that. So I'm going to try and blow through this as fast as I can. I came to this movie um, to enjoy my drink and popcorn and hopefully see some nice visual moments, and then, too, because, well, frankly, I review geek movies, so I have something to talk about on uh, the YouTube channel, and podcasts, so uh, I don't seek out things that I suspect I won't enjoy, but sometimes there's not much else I can think of to talk about. So I did get a nice, uh, a few nice visual moments from the movie, but I would have just preferred to see them as clips uh, for less than 30 seconds without needing any story context. Chris Pratt did give me a few chuckles, so I appreciated that. But I just didn't care about nearly anything happening in this movie. There was a little subplot with a mysterious young girl that tugged on my heartstrings once briefly. And that was like a legit good moment for me. Um, and I didn't find her or really any characters or performances outright annoying. Um, so that was nice. But I still just, you know, didn't care uh, about the story at all because of how trope-filled and formulaic it was. Um, stunts and visuals. Lots of CG with a few key practical effects that I did appreciate. I always prefer that because I'm cursed with an eye that can just pick out CGI usually no matter how advanced it is. I'm just, ugh. If it's, if it's organic life, that's where, that's where it's like I see cartoons that are super, super detailed, but cartoons nonetheless. Um, but uh, yeah, so lots of CG, detailed cartoons, and some nice uh, practical effects in very selective moments to represent the dinosaurs. Neither type of effect, though, seemed um, to be improved from uh, previous films, or even much compared to the original. Now, I do always try to ask myself, is there anything of worthwhile moral, philosophical, or, or spiritual significance going on in the themes or the writing, you know, uh, that might stimulate worthwhile thought or conversation? Um... I mean, there's the usual tropes, and I won't really get into those, but it's just like, you know, uh, we need to be careful that our morality is guiding our scientific endeavors. That's been beaten to death by this series. Um, you know, just that, that theme of caution and, you know. Um, so that one, because I've seen so much of those before, uh, I think I, they just kind of went in one ear and out the other. They're, they're making the same mistakes, and they're not learning from the moral lessons that I think were intentionally embedded in previous Jurassic Park films. But what was what did seem to me new, or maybe I just didn't notice it as much in the previous Jurassic Park movies, is that there seemed to be a theme or motive in the script here connected to either animal rights or animal preservation. Um, although many passionate animal, right, animal rights activists are not Christians or even theists, I think we as Christians actually have more objective grounds for being good caretakers of animals than anybody else. I mean, before humanity decided to reject the role that God intended for us, humans were put here in part to rule over and be responsible for animal life on earth. So uh, I think we should be willing to take up that responsibility as we're able to. But the philosophy driving animal preservation in this movie seems to want to either reduce the value and dignity of human life or elevate animal life to having the same value as humans. Um, now, there are some spoilers here I'm about to get into, so jump ahead 60 seconds if you want to avoid them. In a key scene during the last 30 minutes, the characters have to choose between the 
dinosaurs, quote-unquote, dying or allowing them to be freed in a way that will endanger untold numbers of humans. The choice is made to free them, and in that moment when it's made, it's acted on by a character the audience is meant to feel compassion for and to see as pure and innocent. That is the type of character in this story that that does this action to free the dinosaurs. Uh, This kind of move in writing is used to persuade audiences to go along with and support the value of being affirmed. When you have a character who, like, this character is the one who is right about things or who is innocent and pure, then uh, oftentimes at some point in the story, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I've done this, um, but they're, they're used as, like, a mouthpiece at some point for some kind of a moral uh, concept that the writer wants to affirm. And since they've endeared us to this character up to this point, that makes it more likely that we will accept this moral virtue thing that they've expressed. So, And the reason the character gives for their action um, is, I had to do it, they're alive like me. The implication there is that these animals have equal importance, perhaps more importance, than the humans they will kill. And make no mistake, they kill people and will probably kill a lot more in the next movie. Though conveniently only the bad people, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, I would have preferred the heroes be indecisive and end up watching the dinosaurs break out on their own. That would have allowed for moral complexity and uh, more of an even playing field when thinking about this issue. Or better yet, it would have been cool to see the bold decision to uphold the unique value of humans in the created order by sadly watching these animals die. That would have been kind of a challenging moment, I think, for viewers. But the writers don't seem to want to challenge us to rule our emotions with our convictions. Instead, it felt to me like they hoped to influence my convictions through emotion. All right, well, I have no idea what your tastes are in movies, but if I were a time traveler, I would go back in time and say, Peter, uh, on another day, I might have said skip this one, but as I think about it, I would say don't skip it all together. Just wait three years um, for your boys to be a little bit older then, like, watch the whole series with them. They'll be old enough to enjoy the monsters. You'll enjoy them enjoying the monsters. And between those moments, you can dink around on your phone. It's rated PG-13 for intense sequences of science fiction, violence, and peril. Incoming transmission. A YouTube viewer wrote this week and said, Hello, I've been enjoying your videos for a while. I have been a Christian and gamer pretty much my whole life. So it's been cool to see someone look at my favorite hobby from a Christian viewpoint. For the most part, I play a majority of games out there, but make an effort to avoid certain types of content. For example, I play GTA 5 on mute to avoid the unrelenting language and skip certain scenes. One area I've never quite known how to feel about is games that involve demons. When games just use the term to describe a monster like the Soul series, one of my favorites, it never really bothered me. However, a recent example is Doom. I rented it and really enjoyed it, but have been on the fence about buying it. Like others, it did make me uncomfortable playing because of the subject. The recently announced Doom Eternal has given me mixed emotions. Excitement because I enjoyed the first, but also confusion. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. And I wrote back and said, thanks for getting in touch with me. This is definitely a topic worth thinking about, and I won't pretend I have all the answers. I'll just try to walk you through what I might try to be thinking about if I were in your shoes. I've only played a little of the Doom reboot, and beyond that, only have experience with the Doom board game released about 15 to 20 years ago. 
But let's assume a worst-case scenario where the games are treating the in-game demons like biblical demons, making reference to scripture, but also twisting its interpretation in support of a non-biblical view. And since it, since it seems to be the case in multiplayer, let's say they encourage you to play as a demon and enjoy a power fantasy about being a demon who continually hates and rebels against God. I don't know if the Doom series ever really refers to God, but for arguments, but for argument, let's say it does, and you're encouraged to rebel against him in game. First, just in case you haven't run into me mentioning this elsewhere, I'd think about Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, and maybe give them another read to refresh my memory. Then I'd ask myself, is playing this game going to possibly tempt me or influence my thinking in any way? After that, I would ask, is there anyone around me while I play that could be tempted or influenced by the game because of seeing me play it? If the answer to those questions is yes, I'd have to conclude that I should avoid playing it, or at least playing it around others in the case of the second question, until I can honestly answer no. But even then, in this particular case, I don't know that I'd be interested in playing the game. I think the content, although not influencing or tempting me, would possibly irritate me in some way. I would compare it to watching a movie that clearly has a strong political agenda that I don't agree with. I might find the movie interesting in how it presents the mindset of someone I greatly disagree with, but I wouldn't be able to suspend my disbelief to enter into the intended experience. The example that comes to mind is a movie I saw in which the happy ending involved the fulfillment of a long-term homosexual relationship. As an audience member, I was clearly meant to be rooting for these people to be together and was meant to be tearfully happy when they could finally be together at the end of the movie. Instead, I just sat there sad and a little disturbed to think about how so many people have bought into a lie regarding the topic of homosexuality. In the same way, I can imagine that a game like Doom might present and encourage the adoption of false, harmful thinking to a degree that interferes with my enjoyment of the shooter mechanics and other gameplay or story elements. And since I believe that our recreational time is largely given to us to provide rest and some rejuvenation, I would want to avoid experiences during that time that disrupt that purpose by causing irritation or discomfort. So that's where I would land, I guess. I hope that helps. Please feel free to follow up with any other thoughts or questions. Um, and I didn't, when I was writing my response, I didn't think about this, uh, but uh, it's, it's, all, it's also possible that the, uh, uh, that the viewer here that, that wrote to me um, hasn't seen my video, Can Christians Be Evil in Games? I think that's definitely relevant to this as well. That is a longer video. It's about 30 minutes long, but I really try to take you know, relatively speaking, I guess, a, a kind of a deep dive into the subject of, you know, can, can Christians, you know, how, how should we feel about playing the bad guy uh, in a game? And I think that the, the things that I express there still have relevance, even when we're talking about a video game that, you know, or, or you know, subject matter, you know, or not, well, a video game or a board game or whatever, that is asking you to be the bad guy in a realistic sense, you know, uh, where it's asking you to you know, play like as a demon or something like that. I, I, I honestly think that we, that, that technically we can have the ability, you know, as long as, you know, f yeah, I'm speaking really broadly. Um, how should I put this? I think that it is possible for a particular kind of person um, in a particular kind of place to play a game where they are playing a biblical demon in this game 
and being called upon in the game to uh, rebel against God. But I think if, you know, the only way I can imagine someone playing that and not being in sin is if it's a very detached experience and they're only playing it in in a very clinical kind of environment where, you know, the other people involved aren't going to interpret they're playing this game as an affirmation of anything you know that that it's uh, that it's teaching or or supporting or whatever i mean it would be just it would be a weird weird it, it wouldn't be um it wouldn't be playing the game in the sense that you normally think of as playing the game you know at the very least it would be this very i, I would i would think this kind of detached experience because gosh at least you know yeah i can't imagine i can't imagine it any other way um so it's it's like I'm kind of describing here where, yeah, I could go through the motions. I could play a game where I was being asked to be a demon and to rebel against God and stuff. I could hit the buttons and make the actions in the game happen. But the whole time in my mind, I mean, I wouldn't be entering into the experience at all in the way that's intended. It would, And it wouldn't be for recreational purposes. The only scenario I can think of where I'd be playing that would be so that I could comment on it, you know, in a teaching context of some kind like the content I create online, you know. Um, so, I, <laughs> so yeah, I, I always want to be careful to not make a pronouncement like, no, Christians cannot do such and such activity in geek entertainment without it being a sin, you know. Because I, I think that under certain specific cir- circumstances, we absolutely can, but... I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't ask questions, answer questions that way, because you know the uh, the assumption of the question is probably almost always, you know, in the traditional sense. Can you play a game? And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm babbling again because it's still early in the morning and I haven't collected myself yet. So take that for the rambling that it is guys um let's see here oh yeah feedback feedback give me your thoughts on this podcast christian geek central the youtube channel or anything else we're doing what should we keep what should we change or what's on your mind you'd like a potentially uninformed opinion on we want to make this show and all of christian geek central as fun and useful as we can but we have to hear from you to do that you can send an email or audio file recorded on your phone to p-a-e-t-e-r at spiritblade.com um, if you would like some help, guys, finding a good church in your area, I want to help you if I can. Online resources and communities like Christian Geek Central uh, are a good supplement, but by nature they can't speak to your particular situation like relationships in a local church can. The context for almost everything in the New Testament assumes that we are serving and building purposeful relationships in a local church. So whether you're in a church that lacks Bible-based intentionality or not attending any church at all, if I can help you get connected to an authentic Bible-oriented church, I want to do that. Email me at p-a-e-t-e-r at spiritblade.com and we can try to look at some websites of churches in your area together. Uh, Alright, well, I want to thank Katya from the Netherlands for her audiobook review today. Thank you very much, Katya. I really appreciate what you bring to the show. Uh, I also appreciate Matt McKinney uh, and Kim Wiki when she joins him for DS9 Shawarma. That's coming after the credits, as always. Um, you can also jump back to episode 400 if you want to start from the beginning of that series. Again, you can always find it after the credits. As a reminder, you can find episodes 0 through 500 of this podcast archived as the Spirit Blade Underground podcast at spiritblade.com. Next week, if God allows it, uh, I'll be sharing some more summer of free options for you. And In Search of Truth, we'll be back. We'll be taking a look 
at uh, Proverbs. We're going to start getting into, I think, the first five chapters of Proverbs, and then after that, we'll be going into the book of James. And so we're going to start what is kind of a on-again, off-again, ongoing relationship with uh, with the book of Proverbs as we go from uh, one book to the next going forward. But uh, we're going to spend um, five chapters worth of time in Proverbs starting next week. That's the plan, anyway. Till then, please consider... Please... the. Till then, please consider supporting the work of Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions by purchasing an audio drama, leaving a donation, or becoming a Spirit Blade Insider. You can get more information from our About page at spiritblade.com. Thank you so much for making time for this show. I hope you have a great week, and that you'll join me next time here on the Christian Geek Central podcast as we continue to geek out and seek the truth. The Christian Geek Central Podcast is a community-supported endeavor of Spirit Blade Productions. This podcast is produced by Peter Fremson with support from the Christian Geek Central community at christiangeekcentral.com. For information about the latest entertainment and resources from Spirit Blade Productions, visit spiritblade.com. Thank you for listening. The Dominion has endured for 2,000 years and will continue to endure long after the Federation has crumbled into dust. Five years ago, no one had ever heard of Bejor or Deep Space Nine, and now all our hopes rest here. And that was Dr. Bashir, I presume. Um, interesting. You would think after the two-parter wildness we had, the, the major turning point last time, you would think that they would go with like a comedy episode, and they kind of do, I guess, but this is still a really important episode. It's landmark in and of itself. Yeah, it starts out with a lot of the wacky hijinks, but then it takes a very serious turn. Yeah, and that's the thing. is There's just two different stories that are only barely connected, and... One story is really good and engaging and important and has repercussions all the way through the rest of the show. And the other is only not awful because it has an awesome guest star, but still it's about an awful character. And sadly, that one also has repercussions through the rest of the show. Not much, really. Well, I guess guess it is with the wrong thing. Yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that. Um, I guess we'll start with the silliness. Is uh, Dr. Zimmerman, Louis Zimmerman, comes on the station. And if you don't know him, if you watch Voyager, the holographic doctor, Lewis Zimmerman is the guy who built him, and the doctor is ba- based exactly off him in looks and personality. So it's basically like the doctor from Voyager gets to come here and visit Deep Space Nine. Yeah, he's also it, played by Robert Picardo. And it's a, it's not only is it a great way to do a crossover with a show that, in real, in reality, there should no be no crossovers because they're in different parts of the galaxy, uh, but also. Robert Picardo is hands down at the beginning of the show the best part of Voyager, and so he is a great guest star, and I, I love this guy. Uh, if you ever saw The Wonder Years, he was the coach who kind of stole the show on that. Um, he's been, he's had a lot of guest spots in movies, Inner Space, Small Soldiers, and he usually steals the show. He's just he is he's awesome. He's a great comedic actor. He's a great he's character. He's the snark. Yeah. He always brings the snark. And he's doing great snark here. His job is. Uh, Dr. Bashir has apparently wowed the medical community enough. They're going to make a long-term uh, holographic doctor. 
because the EMH from Voyager is an emergency doctor. They're going to make a long-term one who's supposed to be like a supplement to help out and be a medical place where it's not feasible to have a trained doctor on hand. And because he's going to be long-term, they want him to be more human-like and personable. And they, and they picked Bashir, of all doctors in Starfleet, to be the template, both in the appearance and personality. And so Zimmerman is here to do in-depth interviews. And Bashir says, please don't interview my parents because we don't get along. It's not a good relationship. Just Have leave them out. Haven't talked to them in years. They're not important. Just leave them out. So, of course, Zimmerman goes, note to self, contact parents immediately. And <laughs> then they show up. And, you know, again, there's lots of good humor in this. The problem is there's also a really stupid subplot where he gets hooked. Do you remember Lita? The Bajoran woman who used to date Dr. Bashir until that stupid episode on Ryza. She's one of Quark's Dabo girls. Yes, now she's the only one who really matters anymore. Um, and, of course, she likes Rom and all that. Okay, to start off with, the stupidest part is right at the beginning. She likes Rom. She actually left Dr. Bashir for Rom. And that was a crush to Dr. Bashir's self-confidence, I'm sure. Um, and she knows Rom likes her. So what does she do? I just hope you'll ask me out sometime soon. She keeps she keeps trying to do the subtle hints, push him to ask her out. And she can see he's just he's like so shy and stumbling over himself, but she does nothing. It's like <sighs> it's like oh, it's all the irritation of Miss Piggy. And it's it's like lady, this is the twenty third freaking century. You can ask him out. I hate that garbage about, you know, oh a woman can't ask a man out. Get over that. Yes she can. Well and it's like what what you and I were talking about is she seems so frustrated by Rom being shy and introverted and unwilling to ask. But that's a part of who he is. Yeah, which is why, well then why are you into him if you don't like this major, major part of who he is? And what it probably is, is she's into him as a project. And you would think there would be, oh, that's so charming. And no, it's not charming apparently, it's a problem. And like I say, that goes throughout, and basically she's about to go off with Zimmerman at the end of the episode, and then Rom finally gets up the Ferengi gumption to come in and ask her out. And so now... Rom finally finds his lobes. So they're finally going to be together. Woohoo. And actually, there is some good stuff that will come from their relationship, but always on the Rom side of things. It's about Rom growing as a person. Lita never grows. She'll never do anything of any significance. She is just Rom's arm candy from now on. Uh, so I guess it's important in that sense, but the growth is still going to be all wrong. Uh, but in the real story, uh, uh, through some mishaps and everything else, first off, Bashir and his parents, I would say they have good chemistry, but I'd say it's more accurate that they really, yeah. they're really good at portraying their terrible chemistry. Yeah, they have good negative chemistry. Because they are, especially it's Bashir and his a dad. Broken relationship. Yeah, Star Trek is full of bad father-son dynamics, and there's some good ones too, but... I can think of off the top of my head Picard, Riker, Bashir. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other off the top of my head. Uh, Spock. And his dad have Spock, Chicote. Yeah. Um, Paris. Paris and Tom his dad. Paris, yeah. Right. So that's at least six off the top of my head of regulars who have really strained relationships with their fathers. And Star Trek's actually pretty good about making that into an interesting story. And this one, too. And I can't really go into detail about. What do you think? Should we save this, the surprise? Let's let's leave the surprise. Okay. But the reason that they have that uh, Bashir and his parents are at odds is not just the usual cats in the cradle. You don't understand me, boo-hoo. It's there's there is, a real issue. There here. is a real dark secret in this family that comes to light, which is something that could ruin all of their lives. Yes, and it do, it does come up. 
And this secret, I'll, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to not mention it, but this secret, which it acts, it adds to a lot of things. I've referenced it before, so you probably already know the secret. It's just you've been listening to these, but I'll still assume that you don't know. But this secret, um, they thought of it when they wrote the show. They thought of it for this moment. But it, it does so much because there were so many mysterious gaps in Bashir's background just from things they hadn't written in. That this perfectly slots it's into. A, it's like really good retconning. That it makes sense. Like we've talked about before with other things. There was the episode where he was trapped in his head and the alien was there and the tennis theme and all that. And, you know, he was questioning whether he was holding himself back. And, you know, it ties into so much. And from here on out, not only will this still come up from continuity, because this is not the other Star Treks where... This will be with you for a long time, but you'll never deal with it on camera again. Uh, this is the Star Trek with continuity and consequences, and this permanently changes how we see Bashir and how he interrelates with the world, because we find out he's had a secret, and now it's going to come out, and it's not that he's gay, but I'll use that as an analogy. Now he's out of the closet, and he's using it. Uh, but it's not that he's gay, so don't, that, that's just the example I'm using. Uh, it's Star, Star Trek has... Never yeah, quite they, had the guts to go there. Yeah, they're both pro-gay but terrified of gay. But yeah. that's another conversation altogether. We already talked about with lesbians in space a while back. Um, but yeah, this is a really good episode. It goes into an unexpected... Another thing Deep Space Nine is great at is they will actually portray that there is some darkness and imperfection at the heart of the Federation. Instead of... That there, that there are some things, even at the very core of Earth, and Earth's ways that are not they're certainly not utopian. good, just, and right. Yeah, even even and uh, and they portray it very good because this issue there's no it's not just like oh well there's this heart of corruption that's evil that it's we need to root out. It's not an easy answer. Yeah, it's it's not an easy answer, and it's one of those things. It's kind of like gun control where it's like there's no way you can institute it without causing more injustice. But at the same time, if you don't. There's some wild violence going around, so it's it's that thing where there's no easy answer. Um, it's similar to that kind of a concept. Uh, it's another it's another thing that's uh, strictly regulated and controlled by the government. And again, I love that Deep Space Nine gets rid of what I think is a very immature view of the Federation that Gene Roddenberry from the very beginning put out, which was Earth and humanity is perfect. That's stupid. Not only is that bad drama. As a Christian, we don't hold to that because the Bible says mankind is degenerate. Well, it's often a very juvenile version of perfection. It's it's like dog heaven. It's like yes. oh well, every, there's a fire hydrant on every corner, and you know all the all the sausages you can eat. And he would often have these complete logical gaps in. Well, how does that work? Oh well, it just does. It's we mad. pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps yeah, eventually, exactly. and they act like it's something that oh, mankind just needs to get rid of the. And what it really was, was Gene Roddenberry saying, we need to get rid of things I don't like. He doesn't like capitalism. Well, the Federation is socialist. We don't have capitalism. We don't have religion either. And we don't, yeah, we don't have religion anymore. We just all got rid of it. Well, we didn't get rid of all of it because Dana's referenced that the Hindus still have their things. So it seems like they got rid of all their monotheistic, Judeo-Christian, Muslim religions. Those are the ones we don't get any overt references to, except for Kirk referenced a Christmas party a long time ago. Um... But yeah, and again, I, I cannot tell you enough. Painter, anyone else who hasn't watched Star Trek, if you have to watch one Star Trek, watch Deep Space Nine. It is the black sheep, but it's a good black sheep. Um, and this is a great episode for how, because it's showing that there's a, at least an imperfection, if not a darkness at the heart of the Federation. And it shows 
Not everything is happy, not everything is comfortable, and there are long-term consequences that slot in and so well. And there's character stuff in yeah. here, too. Yeah, there are some great scenes. The, the people who portray uh, Bashir's parents are really good. I think they were well cast. Yeah. Um, if you watch Seinfeld, if you remember Babu, the guy from Pakistan who was talking about how Jenny is a very, very good man, and then later, you're a very bad man. He's the guy who plays Julian's father. He doesn't sound at all like him. He's got like a Cockney accent. Oh, I would say almost Aussie. Yeah, it's something. It's it's and I mean because the Bashir family seems to be that uh, ethnically they're they're some sort of Middle Eastern, like I think Persian of some sort. But they all have British. Well, the father and son have British accents. The mother is full on Indian or Pakistani or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, but so and they keep that little bit of consistency too. It's like. That ethnically, they're uh, Earth is very mixed. Sub Asia, I guess. Yeah. Is that what is it? Sub Asia is the term. Or uh, I don't know what the term is you're the, casting for. The Indian area. Oh, subcontinent. Yeah, subcontinent. Okay, yeah, subcontinent of Asia kind of thing. Um, you know, where it's kind of borderline between Indian and Middle Eastern, but yet they have the British uh, citizenship apparently to their culture. So yeah, it's just, and I've really gotten to really love. Uh, Alexander Siddick, the guy who plays Bashir. And it's really impressive when you think about, at the beginning, he was the irritating character. This would be like Zahn or Chiana becoming the breakout character in Farscape. This would be like Wesley being someone that everyone roots for by the end yeah, of Next said, Generation. They suddenly became deep and interesting. That'd oh be my like, God. Well, I guess it wouldn't be as extreme as Jar Jar Binks. Okay, imagine if Anakin Skywalker in the prequels actually became someone you liked. <laughs> after a yippee. But that's another conversation for another time. <laughs> no, we probably better wrap it up. Yeah, we're we're coming up. Oh, uh, but yeah, definitely check this. It's a major turning point episode, and except for the Lita stuff, it's a good episode. Just grit your teeth through that; yeah. it's worth it. Yeah, you, you got to suffer through Lita, but there's it's not as bad as what we've had and what's still to come. Uh, next time, what do we have? Um, ah, we have Odo and romance. So we'll see you then. Woo.